Today's episode is sponsored by Itential. Itential is network and cloud automation. The Itential platform makes it easy for you to gain insight into your entire network infrastructure. Bring your network into compliance through remediation, automatically prevent non-compliant changes from making their way into the network, gain the confidence you need to automate your network safely. Know your network, automate your network. Find out more at itential.com slash packet pushers. Today on Heavy Networking, we're diving into academic research on DDoS attack techniques. More specifically, our guests have published a paper about how the TCP protocol and middle boxes such as firewalls can be weaponized by bad actors and used in reflective amplification attacks. In fact, our guests have discovered some middle boxes on the internet that can, with a few crafty packets, essentially become infinite amplifiers of DDoS traffic. So we're going to get into the technical details, how they perform this research, potential countermeasures, and the ethics of this kind of research and publication. But first, let's welcome our guest. We're speaking to Dave Levin. He is Assistant Professor of Computer Science at the University of Maryland, Eric Westrow, Assistant Professor of Computer Engineering at the University of Colorado Boulder, and Kevin Bach, a PhD student at the University of Maryland. They are co-authors on a research paper entitled Weaponizing Middle Boxes for TCP Reflected Amplification. We have a link to that if you want to read it. It'll be in the show notes. Uh, folks, welcome to the podcast. And Eric, you can start us off. What prompted this investigation? Well, so I think a couple of years ago, Dave and, and the folks at uh, Maryland, including Kevin, uh, had published this paper called uh, Geneva, which was studying genetic evolution uh, to get around censorship. And uh, I'm sure they can speak more to it than, than I can. Um, but we, we met at a conference and we were talking about this idea and we had this idea that maybe we could um, use this same technique, this genetic evolution, to find a way to uh, trigger middle boxes to uh, take part in denial of service attacks. So as you know, denial of service uh, attacks uh, often have amplification components to them where a, uh, a, um, a, a, a box is used to reflect traffic back to a victim and uh, you send a request to this spoofed from the victim's source address and the, uh, the server will respond with a larger payload. So you're essentially amplifying the, uh, the attacker's bandwidth. Um, so what we discovered here was that if you send a uh, similar request past uh, middle boxes such as government sensors on the internet, uh, this is something that we've been studying for many years. Uh, if you if you send this past a, a government sensor, it will uh, respond with a block page, and these block pages are often much larger than. Uh, the request that you sent, the censored request. And so this can be used as a form of amplification attack. Yeah, and I want to mention, you mentioned the Geneva uh, genetic algorithms. We actually did a show with Dave, I think, and uh, Kevin. Uh, it's episode 488, if you want to go look that up, and we'll talk a little bit about that later. But um, your paper specifies reflective amplification attacks as, as a tool in the DDoS arsenal. Can you talk a little bit more about how they work? And are they essentially a distinct DDoS category, or are they combined with other techniques to generate traffic? I can talk a bit about that. <clears throat> um, yeah, so in a distributed denial of service attack, there are a few different ways of doing this, but usually the attacker's goal is to just generate as much traffic at some victim's network as they possibly can. And so if you control, as the attacker, enough bots or enough compromised machines around the world that can just themselves generate traffic, you could imagine just sending enough traffic yourself. But a really powerful tool uh, in an attacker's arsenal is this notion of reflected amplification. And so this is, this is two things going on there, right? One is this notion of reflection, which, you know, as Eric was pointing to, this is when the attacker or when a machine that an attacker owns sends a packet 
to some other machine, what's going to be referred to as an amplifier, uh, but spoofs the source IP address of the victim. So it looks like this is something coming from the victim itself, like a request typically. Sends to the amplifier, and you want to request that the idea is to find um, some protocol, some sequence of packets that you can send such that the attacker's request or what the attacker sends is smaller than what the amplifier will respond with back to the victim. The ratio, the size of however much the amplifier is sending divided by however much the attacker sent is just the amplification factor. So if you can find something where for every byte that you send, it will respond back with two bytes, that's an amplification factor of 2x. And so what you're basically doing in a case like that is you are doubling however much traffic you have at your disposal. Now, if you could find an amplification of 100x, it's as if you just increase your botnet size by 100x. So this is such a, a basic and critical way of increasing the available capacity that it's it's the foundation of so many different attacks. Now, where they start varying one versus the other is usually um, what is it that they're exploiting? So some of them, for example, use DNS. There are a lot of DNS requests that you can generate where the requests are small and the responses are big. NTP is another one. Recently, memcached, there are some amplification factors in the tens of thousands. Huh. And that caused a lot of concern where these things differ is usually in two ways. One is however how big their amplification factor is. And the other thing is how many amplifiers are out there. How many folks are out there that are, are responding to these requests uh, that are spoofed? Um, no, the, can I ask something there? Yeah. Is, it, is there ever a factor? Like I understand the concept of amplification, like for the case of a DNS, you send a DNS query. And when you respond back, the qu you know, you send a pretty much a 64 byte or, you know, less than 128 byte packet to do a DNS query. Give me this name. But the response that comes back is often 512 or, or even much larger. Right. So your amplification is, is simplistically. Is it ever a problem in DDoS that the attacker has to generate the packets? Like is generating the, the, the packets for a DDoS attack hard or is it always trivial? Like I could do a, an iPhone to generate 100 megs of traffic and generate, um, you know, 10,000, 100 megabits per second out of that or something like that. It depends how much you can send and how big the amplification is. But usually mm. it's, they're, they're, I mean, they're very easy packets to craft because, especially historically, they're very one way. I just generate yeah. a DNS request and I can just send many, many copies of that, right? Maybe I'm changing the query ID a little bit to avoid like any sort of like caching along the way, but I, I just am sending these packets. I don't have to be too clever. I don't have to anticipate. Um, there is one exception to that. Uh, this was a, something that was the OPDAC attack, which is a very different kind. It's not a reflected amplification attack. It's a, it's a DDoS attack based on TCP mm. um, by a colleague of mine. That one requires being a little bit more clever, it can be very, very effective. But for, for the vast majority of the attacks that happen in practice, very, very simple. Now, could something with really, really low bandwidth get hundreds of megabits per second themselves? It depends. It depends what your uplink capacity is. I, I will say that it's uh, not necessarily true that an iPhone could just do this itself. Uh, you need to be able to spoof packets generally for these kinds of amplification attacks. And it's iPhones, a bad example because you sorry. can't get access to the protocol stack in an iPhone. My point was, generating DDoS attacks doesn't require huge amounts of compute power because the there's no encryption process or there's no, it's not difficult to craft a packet and transmit it at 10 megabits per second or something like that. And when you get 100x, you get, you know, substantial. That's right. I, th I think you're getting at something which is really important also, which is that the mental model for reflected amplification attacks, again, the foundation of the majority of DDoS attacks out there today uh, was that it's very, very simple. 
to just craft these requests because the one thing that all of these different attacks have in common, almost all of them, was that they were all over UDP. And with UDP, you don't have to establish a connection. You just send the request in a single yeah. packet and the response goes out. Um, in fact, the mental model was such that TCP-based reflected amplification just wasn't possible mm. because it required, because it, to get anywhere with TCP, to get past that handshake and to get to the good stuff, to get to the part where the application is maybe sending a lot of amplification, you have to complete the handshake. But you can't complete the handshake if you're spoofing the source, right? So if I send, I this packet pushers, I don't feel bad, you know, listing out TCP packets at this point, right? <laughs> but if I send a SYN packet, and yeah. I'm spoofing it, the SYN act is going to not come back to me. It's going to go to the victim. The I need to gonna... complete the handshake with an act, but I, I'd have to guess what your initial sequence number is. And that might do state exhaustion, but it doesn't create substantial state exhaustion to the point where it's a denial of service. Exactly. Because the the box in the far end that receives an un an unsend SYNAC will actually just not even create state. It'll just drop it blind because there's no way it could be handling exactly. a you'll SYNAC get, request without a SYN. Yeah. You'll get them to send resets. You might be able to, you get a, a, a moderate amount of amplification from the fact that that amplifier that you're, the, the attempted amplifier might repeatedly send SYNAC packets but it's pretty low. It's not, yeah. it's not really that, that big of a deal. It's and not so, orders of magnitude of DOS. I mean, exactly. that's like if I send 10 megs of SINs, I get 10 megs of SYNAX at somebody that that's not sending 10 megs and getting 10 gigs. That's right. Amplified, so, from the, which is what we're talking about here. This is where the amplification part comes in. And, and that's exactly right. And that's where what separates this work uh, that, that's just appearing at a conference, you know, pretty much as we speak, is that uh, it, it discovered a way to get amplification attacks even though it's over tcp yeah so okay let's get into that because that is counterintuitive because as you were saying if you can't get past the handshake then you don't have a conversation you can leverage but yet you did in your research discover a way to get in the middle of that tcp conversation well more or less there's a lot of caveats and asterisks there why don't you talk us through it this is this is kind of the crux of this the crux of this work and, and how to leverage these middle boxes and firewalls or other um, other machines on the network path to get TCP-based amplification is getting through this through a handshake. Uh, what we discovered was that there are a lot of middle boxes out there and firewalls in general that need to be very tolerant to various network conditions. So, for example, let's say you're a middle box on the edge of the Great Firewall of China. One thing you may have to contend with is route asymmetry. And so what that means is you may see the client's SYN packets leave the network, but if the return path is different than the outbound path, the SYNAC may not ever cross you. You may not ever see it. And for this reason, route asymmetry, a lot of these middle boxes need to be tolerant to the fact that they never actually see a complete three-way handshake. So this is one case in which middle boxes, they try to monitor the three-way handshake, but they can't actually do it. They can't actually do it completely or even accurately. There's a whole other class of other middle boxes out there that don't even bother trying to monitor the through a handshake. They, they see packets go by and if they see something that looks like a well-formed request, they just assume the through a handshake must have occurred because why else would there be a well-formed request going by? So, so you, in other words, you found that because the middle box can't assume due to asymmetry and in internet routing, that it's seen all the packets it is to see, it can't act on the fact that it didn't see the complete handshake, which back in the day, you, you would if you didn't have a complete three-way handshake that was, oh, bad behavior, I'm going to disconnect this. And all these middle boxes you're taking advantage of can't assume that, meaning they're doing weird things in their TCP stack, potentially. 
That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And that ends up being the downfall that enables this sort of attack. And it, when we're talking about it like this, it sounds like this would be some rare case where there's a small number of bad actors out there who didn't do their TCP stack right. Uh, what we found in this work is this is actually extraordinarily common. Um, censoring nation states, regular firewalls, middle boxes all over the place have these kind of properties and uh, we could take advantage of them all over the world. So how did you find these devices and how did you know that it was middle boxes you were talking to? That's a great question. I think I'm going to answer those in two parts. Uh, so first, how did we find them? And then I'll get to the point of how do we know they're actually middle boxes? So on the how do we find them, uh, we were able to use and leverage a tool called ZMAP. Uh, this is a super fast internet-wide single packet scanner. Uh, what ZMAP lets us do is craft custom packets, basically scan the entire internet and see what's out there. So what we did was we modified ZMAP and we literally attacked ourselves with a single packet. We would set up packet sequences that we thought could elucidate amplification. We sent it to the entire internet. Uh, we actually repeated this process almost 40 times um, and then just drank what traffic came back and then took the hit of all, those, all the receiving traffic and then post-process that out to see which responses was actually from us, how much amplification factor do we get for each IP address, uh, things of this nature. Now, figuring out how to trigger those middle boxes is a whole other question. Um, and then that's another tricky bit that we had to figure out in order to even uh, find these middle boxes in the first place of how do we trigger them. And to do that, uh, we actually leveraged the tool Geneva that we had talked with you guys about uh, two years ago. Uh, we updated Geneva just for everyone listening. Uh, it's a genetic algorithm. It has a fitness function and its reward functions encourages it to reach some goal. And the original goal that we had given Geneva at the time was let's evade internet censorship. So you were rewarded for obtaining forbidden content through the sensor. Uh, Kevin, case, just the, the, the algorithm itself was, if I remember right, trying a bunch of different flags and combos within TCP to see how the destination responded to it. And eventually you'd find fit or something you could take advantage of, right? That's exactly right. Exactly yeah. right. So it's, it's modifying packets as they go by. It's playing with, playing with the TCP stack. It's playing with packets until it finds a hit. So okay. in this case, we modify that reward function. And instead of rewarding it for successfully obtaining something like forbidden content through the sensor or something the sensor doesn't permit, we rewarded it for amplification. We said, you get, you get reward for the maximum response you can get. And basically we allow Geneva to send different packets until it found sequences of packets that could elicit large amounts of responses from middle boxes that we were talking to. And through this process, we were able to find actually five different uh, packet sequences. All of them were pretty simple. Uh, that elicit amplification from different middle boxes. Now, did you specifically try to focus on censoring middle boxes, nation state middle boxes, or is, did that just turn out because of this nature of asymmetry, they were the most likely to give you that amplification? Yeah, so we, we started pretty targeted towards that. And it wasn't until really we asked the question of how bad is this problem globally that we really discovered this isn't just nation states, this is everywhere. Um, so we, we really had started with, let's analyze middle boxes that are blocking HTTP web pages, and then let's broaden this and scan the whole internet and see what's out there. Um, so, so a couple of questions to, to qualify this about the scan. You said scan the whole internet. Does that mean IPv4 space or V4 and V6? Yeah, great question. I'm sorry for not being clear there. IPv4 specifically. I, I kind of figured because you can't actually scan <laughs> exactly. all of IPv6. That's not a thing. So, okay. So we exactly. scanned all the V4. And then how did you decide that these were middle boxes that you were talking to and not, not an end host of some kind? 
Yeah, it's a great question. And yeah, I hadn't gotten there yet. Uh, so one of the one of the, one of the biggest aspects of Middlebox that differentiates it from an end host is its place on the network, right? That's basically the only difference. End host is at the end, Middlebox is somewhere in the middle. And so what we can do is we can send probes and limit the TTL of those probes so that they do not reach the end destination. So if we're on a, we're on a machine and we know how far away the end host is, then we know how many hops there is between us and them, and we can set the time to live field of our packets to be a few hops less. And what that means is when we send our packets, we know our packets will not reach the end host. But in those cases, if we still see responses, if we still see injected amplification, then we know it must be coming from middle boxes. There's gotta be someone else on the network path that's processing these things. So we took the top, I think it was the top million amplifiers and tracer routed all of them, and then limited the TTL to all of them, and then tested what amplification factor we could get. And an overwhelming majority of them, we would see the same enormous amplification coming from the middle of the network without ever talking to the host at the other side. Okay, so there was a lot of numbers there. I want to make sure I've got this. <clears throat> you scanned the internet, you found a million devices that would give you some degree of amplification, whether it was large or small, but it was a million devices who were susceptible to this technique. No, we just took the top million to verify the yeah. thing. <laughs> okay, so there's potentially this more. Experiment well, was, I was just was about to say, you only, you've well, only a discussed bit. a million. You could have found more, I suspect. <laughs> well, let me be a little bit more clear here. What's actually happening is that we're not sending the data. We're not saying we found a million middle boxes. Okay, there's a million destination IP addresses that from our vantage point, we ran these experiments uh, from this, we ran ZMAP from Colorado. Uh, from our vantage point, when we send these particular specially crafted packet sequences to these destinations, it elicits amplification by somebody in the middle. Mm. So it's there could be a middle box that's sitting in front of a million IP addresses, for example, right? And so what that means is there's a million destination IP addresses I can send to, but I'm going to be eliciting the same. Middle. I'm exaggerating, of course. Like I don't think there's we found any that were behind that many IP addresses, but um, so. It's unclear exactly how many middle box devices there are, but this was the top million destination IP addresses that we could send to that would trigger a middle box somewhere along the way. And it was just the top million, you could have gone deeper. Oh, yeah. we, we, can, we can start speaking to the scale of IP addresses that we found if you'd like. Uh, for this experiment of what, which ones did we confirm were middle boxes, we started with just the top million. Good enough for research purposes to prove your point. The point yeah. here isn't to actually, uh, you know, measure in absolute terms than total number of boxes on the internet because next week it'll be different and in six months it'll be different. The point is to prove the DDoS, that TCP DDoS amplification is viable, right? Yeah, you're exactly right. And what kind of degrees were there in terms of the uh, amplification effect that you saw on these million IP addresses? As I mentioned before, there are a lot of instances in the past of different amplification attacks, predominantly over UDP. To give a few concrete numbers, so one of the UDP-based amplification attacks that's, that's really well-known, widely used with NTP, and it's a little over 550x amplification. Mm -hmm. Then you have something like memcached D, about 51,000x amplification. Really, really high. I mean, think about it. This is like taking the size of your botnet, multiplying it by orders of magnitude. So we've found instances of over a million x, 10 million x amplification. Uh, we found about uh, 200 uh, destination IP addresses in total that exceed the memcached D amplification. We found about uh, 100,000 uh, destination IP addresses that exceed NTP. Um, and in some cases, technically, we found some hosts 
that if we send a particular sequence of packets to, uh, we will elicit what is technically infinite amplification. They seem to just respond back with traffic indefinitely. And I want to jump in here with one quick note also. Um, you, you notice as we're talking about this, these other protocols like NTP or memcached, for those we can give one single number. We can say memcached, the maximum you can get is 550. Hmm. Or memcached, the max you can get is 51,000. And the reason we can't give you a nice number for this attack, uh, we, we actually can't. We're not, we're not being evasive for anything. There's no single number for this attack that we can give you. And the reason for that is in most past cases of amplification attacks, what those attacks were taking advantage of is weaknesses in the protocol design itself. Like with NTP, you could request like this and you could get a response like this and the delta there is 550. In our case though, we're not taking advantage of weakness in the TCP protocol itself, right? There's, there's no protocol specification we can study to point to this. Mm -hmm. oh, hang on, hang on. We do have sequence numbers or initial sequence numbers. And you're saying, and I, if I read in the paper, you're actually saying that the boxes, this attack does not need sequence numbers to be correct, to be viable. So you're absolutely correct. You're absolutely yeah. correct. The sequence numbers is not an issue in this case. Uh, my point is that there is no one single amplification number for this attack because it's going to be different for every middle box. Oh, right. Okay. And yes. the reason for that is because we're taking advantage of weaknesses in TCP implementation, not mm -hmm. the protocol design itself. So we can give you a range of numbers. We can say we found 100,000 IP addresses that gave amplification greater than DNS or something like this. Um, but yeah. we can't say our attack has an amplification factor of X because there's no single X. Mm -hmm. On top okay. of that, it's, it's not even just the differences in the TCP. That's exactly right. In addition mm -hmm. to the differences in TCP implementation, it's also a matter of where is this amplification coming from in the first place? It's coming from the fact that a lot of these middle boxes, when they see, for instance, an HTTP request for a, a content that they don't want passing through their network, they'll inject a response in the form of a block page. So the amplification factor boils down to how big of a block page are they sending? Sometimes it's a small amount of HTML. Sometimes it's HTML that embeds an image inside of it. So mm. Kevin's exactly right. There's no one amplification. It comes down to uh, how, how, how many times is the middle box injecting traffic? And what kind of traffic are they injecting? And that's where we- And there's plenty, of, there's, there's plenty of scope here for vendors to suck. Um, Yes, and they've proven true. consistently for two or three decades that they can certainly do sucky things consistently. Yes. Um, okay. <laughs> so exactly the general right. assumption I have is that vendors suck and then wait to be pleasantly surprised if they don't. And so <laughs> failing to implement TCP correctly or to consider the consequences or to test or validate their boxes for these is actually kind of uh, incompetent in a way, like, well, okay, and I don't okay. use that as so, a criticism. So, it just, it's a lack of competence. <laughs> so let me take, let me take the, the flip side of that yeah. because of the context of the middle boxes, uh, and where they're positioned, we go back to that asymmetry problem. There's an assumption that I'm not going to be able to, as the middle box, see the three-way handshake. And so therefore I have to assume that three-way handshake happened. So uh, Dave and, and company, I don't know if you would, I mean, do you blame that on, on the vendors and look at that as a bad TCP implementation? That is, could is there a way they could recode so that they could still be in the defensive role that they need to be in uh, with that asymmetric routing problem we have on the internet? Uh, and and patch so that there that there isn't uh, an amplification vector that you can take advantage of. 
I think that's a really good point. Um, and it's actually been long known that middle boxes are not TCP compliant. Um, so for instance, uh, this TTL trick that we use to discover, uh, that's been used before to fool middle boxes, right? So this idea that you can say, if I send a TTL limited probe, I know it's not going to reach the endpoint. The middle box and the endpoint necessarily have different views of the TCP state of what's going on within any given connection. Um, in, in this instance here, what you're saying is the middle box sees different state from the end hosts and in fact is relying on the state at each of the end hosts uh, as a shortcut to be able to inject, right? So in a normal situation, the client and server are behaving normally. They've got some TCP state and the middle box can say, oh, well, when I see a packet from the client, I know that it's being sent to the server and the server is going to, uh, you know, send acts and the, the client is going to retransmit if it doesn't get those acts. It doesn't have to care about the, the state. In fact, the most simple injections that we found here are where we just spoof a push act packet right in the middle of a connection. There's no connection set up at all. We don't even have to convince the middle box that a connection exists. We just send a bare push act with a censored HTTP request. And the middle box is just waiting for packets that have that signature, a push act with a, a censored request in it, and they inject a response. Um, and in a normal client server connection, that would work. That would inject connections, that would inject packets into that connection and, uh, and mm. cause uh, a block page to show up on the, on the browser of the person trying to view the censored site. But in this instance, because we're sort of abusing this, we're saying, oh, well, you know, because it doesn't have this, uh, this state, we can abuse that for amplification attacks, right? It is mm. necessarily not checking for, uh, for the liveness of a connection, if you will. So I feel like I didn't quite get a ruling then. Is this a poor implementation of TCP or is this uh, middle box owners doing the best they can given that they also need to account for sometimes asymmetry in routing? Well, I want to be clear that this is not a problem with the TCP specification. This is a problem specifically with middle boxes. It's a great question whether middle boxes could be designed to not do this, right? Could could we have an implementation that uh, that doesn't have this amplification attack? I think middle boxes by their nature necessarily aren't TCP compliant. There might be some you know, caveats to that. But uh, in this instance, I would say that, yes, there are things we can do to make middle boxes not do this, but uh, it would be tricky. And I think it's, it's not necessarily just blame the vendors for this poor implementation. Because you're spoofing oh, source on. addresses. Come on, I'm gonna. <laughs> <laughs> you just made Greg very sad. No, 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 I understand the caveats. To go along with what you're saying, what I will do is I will blame the vendors for thinking that putting a middle box in the middle of a network is a good idea. Because I think (laughs) given that necessary, uh, uh, you know, not meeting the TCP standard and and putting things in the middle here is breaking the end-to-end principle. Things can go amok. People have been saying that for years, right? You're going to violate the end-to-end principle. It's going to cause problems. And and people said, ah, bah, humbug. It couldn't possibly do anything bad. Here we are today showing that this is a a negative. Yeah, I agree. TCP was always intended to be an end-to-end. So endpoint to endpoint. But what we also know is that the model of networking 
where we do direct connect is changing. So we're now doing network functions virtualization in overlays. One way or the other, we've got to a situation where SD-WAN creates overlays over the physical network or um, clouds intercept traffic for various reasons, for, you know, to firewall, to do inspection. The way to break encryption is to create middle boxes that Ted, we've seen service mesh architectures inside of the container, which is all about terminating the traffic to get control, visibility, logging, observabilities. And having all of those illities basically means that you have to have middle boxes. And my point or my larger point is that um, incompetence around building valid, viable middle boxes that actually solve the security problems. Most of these features that people are focused on features and functions and how I can exploit these for profits rather than are they secure, are they competently designed and implemented, right? And that that is the eternal networking question. And we've been consistently let down by this. Let's say there's something that's, I think, more concerning, which is that the issue here that the various attacks, the various sequence, packet sequences that Geneva discovered uh, that elicit amplification, they're not possible because of a poorly implemented mechanism. The mm-hmm. mechanism was implemented pretty much as they expected. Maybe there's a few little things that it, 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 it elicits more, but the mechanism is, is right. It's implemented correctly. It's the policy. The policy is what's broken here. So it's not the case that, oh, it's just, it's just a bug. And as soon as we patch some of these bugs in these middle boxes and firewalls and intrusion prevention systems, then this attack goes away. The, the bigger concern here is this isn't a bug. It's operating mm. exactly how they intended it to operate. Yeah. It's that the policy is what's so bad. And the policy is such that they're injecting a lot more traffic into the network than they're receiving. And that's why it, it makes it possible yeah. to explore. Yeah. In, in, in the face of asymmetric routing, they can't rely on, on state or they would break all kinds of things, legitimate connections. Uh, but, but what they could do is focus on maybe rate limiting the number of yes. uh, responses where they're sending a block page to, something like that. Exactly. Here's what's interesting when you start talking about defenses like this, though, and this is one of the reasons why we think this attack is going to be so difficult to fix, especially with these like nation state groups that do this, is just about any defense that you can concoct that they could deploy after the fact, like an aftermarket or some patch, is going to, even if it fixes this problem, will necessarily weaken the censorship system itself. So like with the case that you just described, well, let's just rate limit how often we send packets. You could just imagine I could trigger the censorship system 100 times before sending my real request, and now mm. suddenly all my real requests go through. Or if yeah, I mean, rate limiting is tricky. You've got, it's, exactly. whether you deal with a token bucket algorithm or whatever it is, it, it's hard because you're dealing with time slices and having to track it, all that. It's a big thing. Uh, is it conceptually similar to, in the old days, routers, the control plane was left open and unprotected? And then people started attacking routers, you know, or infrastructure devices directly on their interface IPs. And today, uh, any modern router has standard controls on the control plane so that you can't actually send traffic to the router itself. Blindingly obvious, right, that it should have been done 20 years ago, but never was. Um, I actually think that if you're going to make a middle box and you're going to say, I can't see both sides of the conversation because it's asymmetric mounting is a thing. You should have a, st- a sync state between them, and which says, I have devices in the network. I see an out, I will send a, some sort of data to the neighbors in this system and say, I've seen a session set up and then sync with the others. That's generally how you do it in an, if you're scaling horizontally, because it's a horizontal scale thing, isn't it? Basically, it's just, if you can try and extrapolate that out to the size of a country, 
that kind of conversation between lower boxes starts getting really difficult. We pause the episode for some thinking about end-to-end automation across all your networks with sponsor Itential. I have long advocated for simplifying the network to help make automation work well, and I I have lost the battle. Your, your network probably consists of physical hardware, virtualized network functions, the internet as WAN and VPN tunnels or direct connects, or both to multiple public clouds. So... How's your automation initiative working out? Maybe not great. What if you had an automation tool to help bring order to the chaos? Itential's automation platform makes complicated networks like yours more manageable. The Itential platform offers you insight into your entire infrastructure. So you lean into Itential and it's going to help you quickly detect non-compliant devices and then target them for remediation. And, And all this works if your network devices offer a modern API or are CLI only. And the big idea here, feel in control. Be confident about what your network actually is with the Itential platform doing the heavy lifting for you. And with that baseline, you can trust that the automation processes you build with the Itential platform will deliver the network state your organization requires. Itential also has a configuration manager tool, which lets you integrate configuration validation right into your automation processes. And this lets you take a step back from knowing the nuance of every networking component you're responsible for. You get operational consistency. You ask Itential to execute the configuration task and Itential makes sure it gets done across both your on-prem gear and cloudy virtual infrastructure. All right, so Itential does a lot, and so maybe you're worried that Itential is going to require 19 months of training and a team of rockstar developers to make it work. If you're thinking that you're missing a key point here, Itential is meant to be easy to use. For instance, Itential's low-code automation studio provides drag-and-drop network automation plus an open library of pre-built automation workflows with integrations to any IT system. End-to-end automation across all your networks, simplifying network automation for everyone on your team. Know your network. Automate your network. Itential. Find out more at itential.com slash packet pushers. That's itential.com slash packet pushers. And now back to today's episode. I'm curious, you know, if uh, let's use the, the Great Firewall as an example. You brought that up. You know, maybe they don't care about this amplification attack uh, exploit because as far as they're concerned, the middle box is doing what it's supposed to do, which is blocking a request they don't want somebody to get. But is there a cost to them on their device in terms of resources and so on being caught up in uh, being a, a vector for amplification attacks? And would that then maybe be motivation to try to fix this? For some deployments of middle boxes, that might be the case. It's unlikely that that's the case for the Great Firewall of China. They're, mm-hmm. they're so resource um, so resource heavy. It, perhaps if this were used extensively, maybe they, it, would, it would be noticeable for them. Uh, but, but it's not just these huge nation states that have invested a ton of money and resources into developing these things. We find instances of universities and their middle boxes, DOD sites, uh, where their middle boxes uh, can be used for very, very large amplification attacks. So it's absolutely something that could, um, or I think folks could start to notice it uh, on their own networks. And have you actually seen any of this type of attack being used in the wild or is this still all quote unquote academic? This is all pretty new. Uh, so as, as of right now, I. Th- as far as we know, this has not been leveraged in the wild. Uh, for the past few months, we have been working with a number of DDoS mitigation services. Um, we've given them early access to our code. We gave them access to our paper many months ago. Um, so we've been 
working with them to one, prepare them if other, if there are actors out there who do want to use this, uh, but also to try and get some data sharing going that if they do detect this, that would be interesting to study. Well, what's interesting here is uh, it, this is, you don't have to have uh, malware that you've infected a bunch of hosts with and then fire up your command and control network to be able to deploy. If they're, you discover them, if they're out there and you know they're vulnerable, you can use these. So I, I, that sounds like how you've handled the moral dilemma of such a situation that you've discovered. You've let folks know that, hey, this is a thing. Look, this is exploitable. What, what are we going to do about this? Uh, but, but I mean, this is, this is real world, right? I mean, anyone that yeah. could do what you've done could figure out who's out there offering amplification services unwittingly, perhaps, and then take advantage of them and, and hit a target. Exactly. Yeah. This was not done in a lab. All of this, the training of the genetic algorithm, the measurement of how much amplification is out there where they have this is all done in the wild. Uh, and so we, we took steps to make sure that we've, we weren't impacting other folks that we weren't attacking other folks as, as Kevin mentioned, it was all sort of quote unquote attacking ourselves. Um, but this is all in the wild. In fact, uh, just to, to hammer that home, we, we accidentally denial of service ourselves as one of these experiments <laughs> when we were uh, trying to, I think it was the top million uh, measuring middle box experiment where we send something like 10 or 50 kilobits per second of requests. And we saturated by sending these to specific amplifiers, we got back in response something that saturated our gigabit per second link. So, you know, this is uh, over thousands of, of fold amplification. Uh, and we should have known this, of course, we knew, you know, the, the rates that these were going to respond, but it wasn't until we, you know, hit go on the script and, hey, where did the server go that we uh, yeah. had to think about that. How, how that big a of a pipe day. do you think you, you could fill if you hit the right amplification targets? Yeah, that's a really great question. We we ask this ourselves a lot, and this kind of gets to one of the ethical questions of you know doing these kinds of measurements. So a natural experiment that we really want to run, but we did not run, is how much data could we get or how much uh, bandwidth could we get from any one of these? What's the saturation point? So we know if we send one packet per second, we'll get back you know 10 packets per second. Maybe we'll get back a, a 10-fold amplification or a 100-fold amplification in bytes. But there's a question of, well, if I send you know uh, one kilobit per second, that's true. If I send one megabit per second, that's true. Is it true if I still send a gigabit per second? Do I get 10 gigs back or something? Um, so knowing that saturation point is critical to know exactly what's the overall total uh, bandwidth that you could get from this. Uh, and we did not do that experiment precisely because, uh, you know, finding that saturation point is denial of service uh, against some point in the network. Someone is going to fall behind, whether that's the middle box, uh, whether that's a, an intermediary network. And so because, as you said, in the that. conclusion, you scan the Internet dozens of times and you find over 200 million IPv4 addresses that provide amplification from 1x to over 700,000x, as well as others that effectively yield infinite amplification. And But you're talking in the research about you pick the top million out of 200 million potential amplification sources mm -hmm. and then analyse those to get a sense of how bad this problem could be. Just to give you a in case people listening to this are thinking it's a handful of devices, we're not. We're talking 200 million addresses respond with amplification and could be up to 700,000 X amplification attacks or even worse. Yeah. Can you talk about what you, you mentioned theoretically infinite amplification? How did that work? What, what triggered that and, and how did it work? 
Yeah, that's a really great question. So the typical way that this works, of course, is that we send a request, whether that's a SYN and a PUSHAC or just a PUSHAC, and the middle box is going to spoof an injection. Um, but there are some configurations of middle boxes where they might see our request multiple times. So for instance, if there's a routing loop on the internet and that routing loop happens to uh, have our packets circle around the middle box multiple times until the TTL finally expires and goes to zero. Well, now we get not just one response for every request that we send. We get back hundreds of responses. If we set the TTL to 255 and it decrements by 10, uh, by the time it gets to the middle box, maybe we get back 245 responses from this, this middle box. And mm -hmm. in some instances, those routing loops don't actually decrement the TTL. So they're uh, in, in effect, infinite routing loops. If you send a packet into them, the packet goes around forever until uh, a, a router randomly will drop that or something or, or miss a packet or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so in those instances, if there's a middle box on that infinite routing loop and we send a request into that, the middle box will just keep seeing that packet go around and around and keep saying, oh, I better inject a response, so I'd better inject a response, <laughs> and we'll inject responses back to, uh, to us or the victim in this case. And so in one instance, we found uh, some IPs in Russia that had this uh, configuration on it. And we sent a couple of packets as part of our scans. And after our scans were done, we were still receiving packets. And we actually received packets for weeks after the scans, right? Uh, and we tried all kinds of things. We said, well, can we send resets? Can we convince the middle box to stop? Can we find ways to get rid of this packet? You have it exit the loop, right? We couldn't find anything. What we believe happened is either this randomly dropped after, you know, two, three weeks of the packet going around, uh, eventually, you know, something in the router stopped, or maybe someone restarted a machine or noticed that this was happening. Um, but nonetheless, this, this was there again, and we tried it a couple of times, uh, and we saw this, uh, this, this behavior a few times at a few different locations. And this wasn't just some random IPs in Russia, also to clarify, the, these IPs you're talking about, these were actually a portion of an ISP in Russia, which I won't name here, but an ISP in Russia's actual national censorship system. Um, these problems do occur, and they, they can be well-resourced. There's actually another cause. So in addition to infinite routing loops, there's another cause of infinite amplification, uh, which is honestly my favorite. In this instance, think about it from the client person, the victim perspective. Mm. They, they're sitting there. They haven't sent anything. All of a sudden, a block page shows up. They're getting TCP traffic. And so what does a compliant TCP client do at that point? They send back a reset. Say, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not involved in this communication at all. Now, this is where there are bugs in some of these vendors and where we can do some finger pointing, much to, to Greg's satisfaction, I'm sure, <laughs> which is that some of these middle boxes maintain a little bit of state that they know that they just blocked somebody. And they're saying, I'm going to block this further communication between these two end hosts. Well, this victim sends a reset. The middle box sees this and says, didn't I just tell you to stop talking to me? And they send another block page. The mm -hmm. client sees this and says, I don't know what you're talking about, sends a reset. I told you to get away from me, sends another block page. It goes back and forth and back and forth. And so the compliant victim sustains this attack. We call this a victim sustained attack. Uh, and so what's interesting about this is that you get to the point where you're also starting to up, take up some of the clients or the victims uplink capacity as well. And so in this case, uh, we, we confirmed that this was going on because uh, what we did is for our own quote unquote victim machine, we just told it stop sending resets. And then these these infinite amplifiers went away. And that's a sort of race condition that vendors should be detecting to protect their own boxes. 
for so that customers don't have problems with the boxes because they'll do a self, they'll exhaust their own resources. They'll DDoS themselves effectively. Exactly. Exactly. Which is, which is, and that's what I mean about a lack of competence. They don't consider these things. They don't think about them. And then even if they know about them, they don't fix them. That's a lack yeah, of competence or incompetence. The, yeah. the finger pointing there specifically is, uh, I believe the TCP standard says you should never respond to a packet with the reset flag set. Mm, um, yeah. and, and this is exactly what they're doing is they're responding to a packet with the reset flag. There's probably some reason too, like a customer's log default or something and somebody's blindly implemented something without thinking of the security concerns. I want to ask a more general question because we're getting, getting to the end of the discussion is why are, uh, university researchers like yourself so interested in middle boxes. I read a lot of research papers about middle boxes and it's like you've got some sort of morbid fascination with torturing them or something. Is that, <laughs> you know, or, or, you know, or is it just because they're such an easy target? It's easy to get material. <laughs> that, that's a good question. I, I think I know I think, I'm full of good questions. I only ever <laughs> ask good questions. So I, I guess, I mean, I, I can't speak for all academics, but I think, yeah. What I find fascinating is, like, let's return back to where we started, right? Which mm. is that the old mental model was that TCP-based amplification just wasn't really viable beyond like the very, very basic attacks of just sending SIN packets. And now we have to revisit that. And I think one of the things that middle boxes do is they do violate a lot of the basic design principles of the internet. And so it forces us to go back and say, the internet's just not operating the way we are taught the way that we've assumed, like we have to mm -hmm. go back and revisit a lot of our basic, basic assumptions because of these funky new middle boxes that are, are just fundamentally changed some of the communication um, properties of the internet. Like no longer is it, is it end to end. So we have to go back and re-ask a lot of questions. So, so maybe that's a, that's certainly what, what drives uh, I think some of, some, some of our investigations. Sure. To add to that, add, ahead, add to that also, um, I, I think it's, it's not just the case nowadays that middle boxes, uh, maybe 20 years ago or 30 years ago, middle boxes uh, were just entering the network or were primarily used for as just firewalls or just security devices, um, but that was their primary purpose. I would think about it, nowadays, a lot of these middle boxes, particularly these sensory middle boxes, these are now the gatekeepers to access information for hundreds of millions or actually billions of people around the world. Um, so if you wanted to pick one single target to play with um, that had maximum bang for buck as far as um, what types of devices are are controlling access to information for the most amount of people, metal boxes would be pretty high on that list for me. I, maybe I, I want to try to ground this just a little bit. If I'm a network engineer or a security person and I'm running a bunch of firewalls in my DMZ, what should I be thinking about in terms of my exposure to this and my potential you know, being a vector for this attack? That's a great question. I think the, the mitigations that we talk about in the paper, we, we tried to ground in reality a little bit, right? With what, what can people do in this instance, right? What, what's a way to stop this? If middle boxes are going to be deployed in the network uh, and are necessarily not TCP compliant, what are ways that they can do to mitigate this or lessen this harm? One obvious thing that they can do is um, is limiting the injected response size. So for instance, the Great Firewall of China is actually not a strong amplifier here because what they inject is just reset packets. They inject three reset packets, so they are a weak amplifier uh, to you know, our two packets or so. But, uh, but you know, just by injecting resets and not an entire block page with kilobytes full of images and so forth, um, they, they at least are not you know, amplifying by hundreds of thousands or something like that. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so that sort of makes your device less interesting to somebody trying to get the bang for the buck. That's right. So uh, if you were to inject an HTTP page and you wanted to show a block page, not just tear down a connection, you could maybe do an HTTP redirect to a short URL and then have that URL load the page that you actually wanted to show. You're not allowed to look at this content. Here's why. Click here to report whatever. Um, the other thing that we uh, suggested was thinking about directionality, right? Uh, a lot of sensors and a lot of middle boxes work bi-directionally, right? Uh, in fact, this is one of my favorite things about studying censorship and, and how I got into this in the first place was if you send a packet into China from you know the US where, where I am in Colorado, um, you'll experience the same censorship as a, a citizen in China trying to access websites outside. So if I send a censored DNS request to Baidu.com, I get DNS injected responses back uh, from the Great Firewall, right? It's not because Baidu is running any kind of DNS server. They're not, right? It's because the Great Firewall injects in response. And because of this bidirectionality, this means that you can attack anyone from anywhere, right? There's no limit that you have to be in the country to perform these attacks or uh, at a particular vantage point. And so one mitigation that sensors or middle box developers could do is they could say, well, you should have an inside and an outside of your network. Where's the part that you're trying to censor? Where's the, the, the clients that you're trying to block? Uh, and if you see connections from them going to the outside, then you can inject pages or whatever you're going to inject. But if you see something coming in the opposite direction, coming from outside in, well, you shouldn't be blocking that in the first place. You shouldn't be trying to uh, censor that at all. Now, that requires some you know, finesse, some understanding of the, the deployment, where this is going to be deployed in, in the wild, right? some uh, list of subnets or something like that that's counted as in-network uh, and some subnets that are, that are, that are outside. But, uh, but we think that would be a pretty uh, uh, viable uh, mitigation here and would actually cut this down for, uh, mm. for the entire world. That could be complicated by the distributed remote work issue we're facing mm. now, though. Definitely. And so one final thing, uh, congratulations on making a paper that's quite readable. Um, <laughs> that's, that is, as somebody who reads some number of, I wish I could read more, to be honest, it's actually quite a readable paper by normal people. And uh, part of the reason <laughs> that we can discuss it with you is it's not written like it's meant to be, you know, professor to professor talking about some esoteric weird thing. It's just very readable, very approachable, and your code is available online if people want to go and uh, poke at it. That is the greatest compliment. Thank you so much. Yeah. yeah. I read a lot of research papers and some of them are just deliberately obfuscated. And I'm like, why didn't you just write it? I have to read it <laughs> quite a few times before I'm getting to the point. I mean, yeah, so we are out of time, uh, but I do want to thank uh, Dave Levin, Kevin Bach, and Eric Westrow for joining us. Uh, and I'll ask each of you folks if you've got a website, uh, Twitter, or some kind of social presence. Uh, Dave, starting with you, where can folks find you on the internet? Yeah, on Twitter, I'm distributed Dave. Excellent. <laughs> Eric, how about you? Uh, on Twitter, I'm Ewust, E-W-U-S-T. All right. And Kevin? I don't even have a Twitter, but I will point you to the project website for this, uh, which is censorship.ai. Great. And we'll also have a link to the paper we discussed. It'll be in the show notes. Uh, Kevin, just one final note. You know, I don't know how many student loans you have, but you right now are sitting on a DDoS goldmine, if you know, it ever comes. <laughs> now we're talking. <laughs> <laughs> this work was self-funded. That's right. <laughs> <laughs>
All right, this does wrap up the show. Uh, thank you so much for joining us for this fantastic conversation. Uh, to our listeners, if you, if you like this episode, you can find it and many more fine free technical podcasts along Relic Community blog. That's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at packetpushers. Find us on LinkedIn and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.